Hello, my fellow divers, and welcome back to another episode of Crime Dive, where we take a deep dive into crime. I'm your host, Lexi, and I want to say thank you so much for joining us. It means a lot to me. If you're new, welcome to the water. We're happy to have you. If you're returning, welcome back to the water, and thank you for coming back for another episode this week. As always, be sure to follow me on Instagram and TikTok. I have included the links to my profiles in the episode description, as well as any timestamps in case you want to skip ahead, skip around, go back, go forth as well as using our support link to help us out over here at Crime Dive. Anything helps. We appreciate it so much. So today we're going to be talking about the case of Susan Smith. And honestly, this case pisses me the hell off. It disgusts me to the core. I really want to know what you guys think of it. I'm sure you're going to think the exact same thing. But before I get into the case, I do want to give a trigger warning pretty much over the entire episode. I know normally I give trigger warnings right before I start to break down the the details of the case and kind of get into the specifics of things because I know it, sometimes it can get a little uncomfortable. But to be honest, this entire case to me is very uncomfortable. We are going to be speaking about the deaths of children. We're going to be speaking about sexual abuse as well as suicide. So just want to give a trigger warning over the whole episode. If those are topics that you're not comfortable hearing, I advise you to maybe not listen to this episode. But with that, let's get right into the case. Susan Lee Vaughn was born on September. September 26, 1971 in Union, South Carolina. Her parents' names were Linda and Harry Vaughn, and she had a brother named Scotty. Her parents divorced when she was pretty young, and not long after that, Susan's father actually committed suicide, and she was only six years old. And Susan claimed that she tried to kill herself twice as a teenager after her stepfather had allegedly molested her. Despite Susan's issues at home, she was actually pretty popular in school. She was very well-liked. Everybody thought she was pretty. She was nice. She was just very well known within her high school. Eventually, Susan started working at the Winn-Dixie grocery store in Union, South Carolina. And Union is a pretty small town. It's a very small southern town in South Carolina. And it was working at this grocery store that Susan met who would become her future husband, David Smith. Now, Susan and David actually went to the same high school, but they didn't know each other very well. They didn't really talk that often or interact until they started working at the grocery store together. Pretty soon, they started dating while they were both employed there, and Susan ended up getting pregnant at 19 with her first son, Michael Daniel Smith, who was born on October 10th, 1991. And at the time Michael was born, Susan was 20 and David was 21. The same year Michael was born, Susan and David got married. But the relationship definitely was not all peaches and cream and happy. It turned sour pretty quickly. Both of them constantly cheated on each other. There was a lot of infidelity. Now, keep in mind, they're pretty young, so, and they probably have a lot going on. They have a lot on their plate, a lot of pressure being young parents. And David was always moving in and out of the home. Like, nobody, the neighbors, their family members, nobody ever knew whether or not they were together because they broke up so often just to get back together. Within this making up, breaking up cycle, Susan ended up getting pregnant again. And on August 5th, 1993, she gave birth to her second son, Alexander Tyler Smith. Michael was so protective of his baby brother. He absolutely loved him. They were very attached to each other. And it was clear very early on that they were going to be the best of friends. Unfortunately, this harmony did not translate 
to David and Susan's relationship and things just kept getting worse and worse for them when they decided to separate and pretty soon they were headed for divorce. Things for the Smith family, they weren't the best, but they weren't bad. I mean, David, he still appreciated his life with his sons. He loved them to death. They were his entire world. I mean, he lived for them. He did everything for them. And Susan was the same. She absolutely loved her kids. She loved her boys. David says that she took great care of them. So although things weren't going the best in the relationship between David and Susan, they were still great parents. And the boys lived a pretty happy life. So no one would have expected that on Tuesday, October 25th, 1994, Michael and Alex would go missing. So Susan, who was 23 at the time, was on the way to a friend's house around 9 p.m. when she stopped at a red light on Highway 49. All of a sudden, a black man came up to her with a gun. Susan said that he jumped in the car and ordered her to drive. Now, Michael, who was three at the time, and Alex, who was 14 months old, they were strapped in their car seats in the back seat when this man jumped into the car. And Susan was absolutely terrified. The boys were screaming and crying. And she asked him, why did he want her to drive? What's going on? And he told her to shut up. The man then told Susan to drive down Highway 49 and head toward John D. Long Lake, which is in the town of Union. The man then made Susan get out of the car and she proceeded to ask if she could get her kids out of the car. And the man replied, no, he didn't have time for that. And he got in the driver's seat and drove away. The kids were still in the car and Susan was just standing on the side of the road, completely dumbfounded. Now, obviously, Susan's hysterical, has no idea what to do. So she decides to run to the nearest house and asks them to call 911. And we're going to play that call for you here. Yes, ma'am. Uh, there's a lady who come up that door. And uh, she, some guy jumped into a red light with her car with her two kids in it. And he took off and, he, and she got out of the car here at Ohio. And he's got the kids? Yes, ma'am, in her car. I don't, and she's real hysterical. And I just thought I, I need to call along and get them down here. What kind of car is it? We need to know something. We're trying to ask her now. A Mazda protege. What color was it? A burgundy Mazda protege. Get him going, Pam. I got two kids. Okay. So after the 911 call is made, Susan calls David, who was 24 at the time, to let him know that her car had been stolen and the boys were in the back seat. And David was at work at the time. So as soon as he hears this, he immediately drops everything and drives really fast to the home that Susan was at in order to get to her. Keep in mind, Susan is still in the home of the people who called 911 for her. And as soon as David arrived, she just collapsed in his arms. And David says that she was so upset. She was completely hysterical, crying, could not collect herself. Eventually, the police arrive and Sheriff Howard Wells of the Union County Sheriff's Office, he was leading the investigation and Eddie Harris was investigating the carjacking. So they had a lot of people, a lot of eyes on this thing because we're talking about two missing children. They decided to put out an APB or an all points bulletin on Susan's car, which was a 1990 maroon Mazda protege and the license plate was GBK 167. Susan was initially questioned by officers just to kind of get a baseline and she said that the man did not ask her for any money and he said that he wouldn't hurt the kids. So they're kind of wondering, then why did he take them? Susan was actually doing a lot of interviews during the days of the investigation because she wanted to get the word out about her children to let everyone know that they were missing. The first night of the investigation, she met with the forensic sketch artist named Roy Pascal and he decided to travel to Union in order to meet with Susan so he could get a description of the suspect. They could release the sketch to the public so people could know who to be on the lookout for. This is pretty standard 
protocol for situations like this. And Susan's description of the assailant was a black male wearing a plaid shirt, blue jeans, and a blue beanie. And this was the sketch in the description that everyone was going off of and investigating in order to find this guy so they could find Michael and Alex. So the next day, Thursday, October 27th, 1994, this was the day after Susan met with the sketch artist. And this is just two days after Michael and Alex went missing. But law enforcement was working overtime trying to find these boys. They used helicopters. They swept the woods, horseback. They were doing everything they could to find the boys. They even reached out to the Department of Natural Resources to bring out the dive team in order to search John D. Long Lake because this was the last place that the boys were said to have been seen by Susan before they were driven away by the kidnapper. Now, sometimes John D. Long Lake was called Black Bottom Lake because it was very muddy water. It was very hard to see through the surface. And when the dive team searched the lake, they didn't find anything. Over time, leads started to trickle in as the days went on that the kids had been seen. There were a lot of tips coming around. There was also a report that Susan's car was seen and of course it didn't pan out. But the police were focusing heavily on Highway 49 because this was, again, the road and the highway that the boys had last been seen on before they were taken. Now, the night that Susan spoke with Roy Pascal, the sketch artist, he simply asked her, what do you think should happen to the person that did this? And she kind of paused and said, I feel like when the sun comes up, they'll find my children, but I know how they can get to you when they've been crying. And Roy said that this just made him feel so uncomfortable. It made him so upset because in his mind, he was thinking, you know, their mother doesn't think they're alive. Should I? It was very unsettling for him to hear that she may think that because the boys were crying, that whoever took them could have possibly killed them because they were fed up with all the boys crying. The town of Union, South Carolina really stepped up. Like everybody was volunteering for the searches. They continued to scour the area. Even priests were giving special prayers and sermons specifically for Michael and Alex because they really wanted to do everything they could to keep morale high, keep hope alive, and let everyone know that, you know, we're hopeful that these boys are going to come home safe and sound. But as time went on, people started to realize that the boys may not be found alive. Sheriff Wells held two press conferences a day just to keep the case fresh in everybody's mind. He did not want anybody forgetting about this case because he couldn't forget about the case. The public was very responsive to these press conferences. Everybody was calling in tips and leads and making sure that they were doing their part and looking for the boys. Even the Poly Class Foundation got involved. And this is all because David Smith's grandfather reached out to its founder, Mark Class, and asked him if he could do what he could to help the investigation. Now, a little bit of background on the Poly Class Foundation. If you've never heard of the case, this was a foundation that was started by Mark Class, who was the father of Polly Class. Now, Polly Class was a 12-year-old girl who was abducted from her home and subsequently murdered. Her father decided to start a foundation in her honor in order to help other people who were dealing with missing children cases and abductions. And David's grandfather reached out to him and said, please, you know, we really need some help in this case. And Mark said, absolutely. So he decides to fly to Union, South Carolina to meet with Susan and David in order to kind of get their take on things and just connect with them and really do what he could to help. But when he showed up to Union, he found out that Susan and David were not speaking to anybody. That's right. Susan and David stonewalled the public altogether. And up to this point, they had actually been doing a lot of TV interviews. They were very vocal with the public. They were speaking out a lot. They were doing everything they could, as one does when their children go missing. Because, you know, you want your face to be out there. You want their face to be out there. You want to stay in people's faces as much as possible so people don't forget about it. But Susan and David, for whatever reason, just decided to stop. And instead, they had a family spokesperson speak on their behalf. And this spokesperson's name was Margaret Gregory, who was actually
actually Susan's cousin, and the public was not happy about this. They did not like the fact that Susan and David decided to stop talking to them altogether, and they kind of thought it was pretty suspicious. But if they thought that was suspicious, it was only going to get worse. Susan's story wasn't really adding up. There were a lot of inconsistencies, and pretty soon it started to come out that her version of events was just not lining up with the evidence. So most people that are stealing a car, and that's their sole intent, they're going to abandon this operation altogether if they see that there's children inside. Because at this point, this is not just a carjacking. It turns into an abduction. And the man didn't steal anything. He didn't go through Susan's purse, which was sitting on the floor right next to him when he was in the passenger seat before he made Susan get out and he went to the driver's side. So money wasn't his intent. So it's kind of like, okay, are you, do you just want the kids? We weren't sure. Another hole that was poked in Susan's story was the fact that her neighbor across the street said that Susan left her home between 6 and 6.30 p.m. But if you recall, the 911 call was placed a little after 9 p.m. So what was she doing for three hours? Susan said that she left her home around 9 p.m., but her neighbor said no, she definitely left between 6 and 6.30. Investigators asked him, well, how do you know this? And he said, I looked out the window and I saw her leave. And they actually checked this out and he ended up being right. Susan did leave her home three hours earlier than she told police. Once this was brought to her, of course, she changed her story. First, she said she was going to visit a friend named Eddie, and she claimed that he lived about a mile from where the carjacking slash kidnapping occurred, so police decided to interview him. And he said that he had no plans of hanging out with Susan that night. He actually wasn't even home. So once Susan was told this information, she changes her story again and claimed that she was just walking around Walmart for three hours. Okay, a few issues that I have with that. Where were your groceries? You have two small children, you went into Walmart and you didn't get anything because there were no groceries found in her car. Now, I'm not going to the store and walking around for three hours and not getting anything. Not only that, but nobody remembered seeing Susan there that night in the Walmart because it's a small town. If she was there for three hours, somebody would have recognized her. I can personally attest to this. I live in a small town and when you go to the grocery store, you're gonna see at least five to 10 people that you know within your first five minutes of being in the store. So if Susan was there for three hours, a lot of people probably would have seen her, but no one did. And this is probably the most damning piece of evidence that completely invalidates Susan's entire story. And it is the fact that the intersection where she claimed the carjacking occurred, which was on Highway 49, this never would have happened on that highway, given the way that Susan told the story. Let me break that down. So Highway 49 has a light, a traffic light that is always green. I've personally never encountered a highway like this. The light is always green. And the only time the light turns red is that there's another car coming at the opposing intersection to where you have to cross paths, if you guys can imagine that in your head. But Susan swore that there were no other cars and no other witnesses. So how did your light turn red then if there were no other cars there? If there were no other cars there, her light would have continued to be green and she would have kept going. It wouldn't have been red. She wouldn't have been stopped because she would have still been driving. So that's pretty much the biggest inconsistency in Susan's story altogether. But David said that he wasn't suspicious of Susan at all. If anything, he had a lot of faith in her. He said he really trusted her and he just kind of chalked this up to her just being distraught and upset and nervous and kind of just forgetting little details here and there because she had been through a traumatic experience. So it's protocol to interview the parents of the victims, especially the person that was there when the incident occurred. Susan and David were interviewed a few times. Now, they both were given polygraph tests 
arrests. And David was ruled out very early on. I think he was only interviewed once by police and they determined that he had nothing to do with this. But for some reason, police kept having to interview Susan because her story just wasn't adding up. It continued to change. It made no damn sense. The traffic light turned red when there was no one there. It pretty much invalidates her entire story. So the police department brings in a polygraph examiner named Pete Logan and he met with Susan a few times. The first time he met with her, he decided not to give her a polygraph test and he kind of just wanted to get to know her, get a gauge for what happened and what her detailing of the events was. So he simply just asks her to detail what happened that day. But for some odd reason, she refused. So the next day she comes back and Pete Logan decides to give her a polygraph test. And he asks Susan, was it possible that the carjacking happened somewhere else? And it was at this moment that Pete Logan told her that where she said the carjacking happened was essentially impossible because there's no way that light would have turned red if there was nobody else there. So he kind of gives her a little bit of bait to change her story and just further invalidate what she's saying. And of course, Susan takes the bait and she admits that the carjacking did happen somewhere else. Once again, she changed her story and she moved the location of the incident to a rural area 13 miles away. But this was impossible because this area had a lot of police presence that night due to a drug operation. So there was no way that a car with two children in the backseat would have been stolen and no one would have seen, especially the cops. Now she can't even pinpoint an exact location of where this incident happened. Susan was given three different polygraph tests and she failed every single one of them. And Pete Logan determined that Susan was not telling the truth. Eventually, Susan's story started to unravel and it was pretty obvious that she wasn't being honest. So on Thursday, November 3rd, 1994, after nine days of investigating, the police decide that it's time to confront Susan. So Sheriff Wells has her brought into the station and he pretty much tells her, look, Susan, it's time to tell the truth. There's no way that your story panned out. You've changed it a thousand times. This just didn't happen the way you said it did. It's time to tell what really happened and where the boys are. And it's at this moment that Susan asks Sheriff Wells to pray with her. And he does. He ends up praying with her. And Susan's just hysterically crying. She's very upset. And it's at this moment that she decides to tell Sheriff Wells that her car is in the lake and the kids are in the car. Susan signed a confession stating that she strapped the boys into their car seats and let the vehicle roll into the lake. Finally, after nine days of lying and putting on for the cameras, Susan finally decides to come clean. And she tells Sheriff Wells that she drove to John D. Long Lake, which has a very steep drop off. She kept going down the ramp and stopping and going and stopping and going because she just couldn't work up the nerve. And eventually she just released the emergency brake and let the car roll into the water while Michael and Alex were still strapped into their car seats. The same night that Susan finally decides to come clean, Sheriff Wells holds a press conference. And I'm gonna play that audio for you here. Susan Smith has been arrested and will be charged with two counts of murder in connection with the deaths of her children, Michael, three, and Alexander, 14 months. The vehicle, a 1990 Mazda driven by Smith, was located late Thursday afternoon in Lake John D. Long near Union. Two bodies were found in the vehicle's back seat. Identities are pending an autopsy. 
Charges against Smith will be signed by Union County Sheriff Howard Wells. Now, as soon as Sheriff Wells announces that Susan was arrested in connection with the deaths of her two sons, you can just hear the audible gasp, the shock of everybody. I honestly could not imagine being alive during this time period and following the case and getting so emotionally invested. I mean, I would have felt so bad for her. So I couldn't imagine the shock and the anger hearing that the whole time she was giving all of those interviews, pleading for her boy's safe return, that she knew what happened to them. She knew they weren't okay because she was the one who was responsible for their deaths. I can't even fathom that. And she just did it so easily. So now that the truth is out, I really want to go back to Susan's initial lie and the fact that she blamed this crime on a black man. Now, this was not uncommon for people, specifically white women, to do. They recognized their privilege as being a white woman and they use this in their favor in order to blame someone that is the opposite race as them in order to be believed. It's almost as if because they're white and the person that they're blaming is black, they feel as though this gives them an extra sense of credibility. Susan knew what she was doing by blaming this crime on a black man that never existed. It's no coincidence. There's no coincidence at all that she chose specifically to make the alleged assailant a black person. And that to me is really disgusting because at the time, black men were being hunted down by the police because of Susan's claims. You know, she knew that, oh, if I say that a black person did this, then I'm the last person they're going to think. And it's really sad that she used her white privilege to her advantage when all the while she was the one who hurt her children. Now, I spoke earlier about John D. Long Lake, which was often called Black Bottom Lake, and that the dive team did in fact search it. But they didn't search it far enough. I don't think they really thought the boys were in there, to be honest. But obviously, once they were told that the boys were there, they went out even further. They scoured the lake, and that's where they found Susan's 1990 maroon Mazda protege. And it was pulled out of the water, the lights were still on, and the boys were still inside, strapped to their car seats. One of their little shoes had actually been found on the back seat as well. And Susan's wedding albums and maternity clothes were all found in the back of the car. Almost like she was trying to get rid of her old life, including her children. Like who does that? The public was just absolutely shocked. Everybody felt fooled by this woman and they were so angry at her as I would have been too. I would have been mad as hell. I mean, Susan was said by David especially that she was a great mother. The boys were always clean, always fed, and David never had to worry about them when they were in her care. I mean, he didn't even suspect her, even though her story was so inconsistent pretty much the entire time. And he was probably the most shocked. And before the trial started, David decided to file for divorce from Susan in 1995. I mean, he just wanted to completely cut ties with her. He was done with her. That was it for him. And he says that around this time, he also contemplated suicide. I mean, I couldn't imagine going through something like that. I think it would make my world very dark as well. So even though everyone was shocked, the police were not as shocked because they had been watching Susan, unbeknownst to her, from day one. So let's go back to day one of the investigation, which was the day after the boys went missing. And this was Wednesday, October 26th, 1994. So remember Roy Pascal, the sketch artist that I was speaking about earlier that met with Susan? Well, after his first meeting with Susan, he went to Sheriff Wells and pretty much told him that she was involved. He just knew it. And he was asked about his suspicions. And Roy said that right before the sketch interview, he sat down and met with David and Susan together just to kind of talk to them. And he said Susan was crying. She was very upset. And David was consoling her. But as soon as David left the room, almost like a switch, 
Susan stopped crying and said, okay, let's get this over with. And he said that that just never sat right with him, that he knew something was off about her. The police decided to conduct a parallel investigation, which is an investigation that you do or conduct alongside the main investigation. Only the parallel investigation was a secret. They wanted to see how Susan would behave without her knowing that she was a suspect. So they wanted to get her true reactions. They wanted to see her real behavior. So they didn't let her know that they were on to her. They acted as if they fully believed everything she said, even though they knew pretty much the whole time that it was bullshit. And they paid very close attention to her behavior during her TV interviews, which she did a lot of. And they noticed that Susan was scrunch crying. And scrunch crying is pretty much when you're making a crying face, but you're not showing any tears. She showed no tears. I watched one interview and she showed like one, like when I tell you that girl was squeezing her eye hard to get that little crocodile tear out. Like she was struggling and all she could manage to get was that one tear. Not only was Susan fake crying in interviews, but she was also flirting with the cops and she was acting very friendly, telling them that they looked great for their age and oh, they look so good for older men. Like just weirdo behavior. Like your children are missing. Why are you flirting? It's almost like she liked being that damsel in distress or the poor mother whose children went missing and no one knows what happened and everybody was treating her with such care because everyone felt so sorry for her and I think she really liked that attention. So the trial was set to start in 1995 and Susan hired defense attorney David Bruck. His main defense was that Susan's mental and emotional issues from the abuse that she experienced as a child at the hands of her stepfather caused her to commit these acts. She herself detailed in her confession that she was actually going to kill herself. And she claims, quote, I wanted to end my life so bad and was in my car ready to go down that ramp into the water, end quote. So Susan pretty much tried to sell the story that she was going to kill herself. But that makes no sense because if she decided not to end her own life, why did you kill your children instead? Why didn't you just leave? If anything, why were the kids there at all. If you were only going to kill yourself, why did you even bring your children along with you? Wouldn't you have just gone alone? And then when you decided not to do it, you would have left? The kids wouldn't have been there at all if her main goal was to only take her own life. So that story right there just makes absolutely no sense to me. But it didn't take long for investigators to find out what Susan's motive may have been for killing her children once they started doing a little bit of digging. So Susan worked at a company called Conso. The company she worked at after leaving the Winn-Dixie Girl store and she fell in love with the owner's son, a man named Tom Finley. And he was a pretty rich guy. I mean, his father owned this company. It was a big employer for a lot of people in Union at the time. So he had some money and they had been dating and it actually overlapped with while Susan was married to David. Now keep in mind, Susan and David were pretty unfaithful to each other throughout their relationship. And Susan was dating Tom right before her and David officially broke up for the last time. But just 10 days before Michael and Alex were murdered, Tom broke up with Susan. Susan, and he wrote her a letter saying, quote, Susan, I could really fall for you, but there are some things about you that aren't suited for me. And yes, I am speaking about your children, end quote. So this is said to be the motive as to why Susan killed her children, because she felt that if she got rid of her kids, then Tom would want to be with her. But girl, what would make you think that? Do you really think that this guy is going to want you more after you killed your children? What? I don't like, what was your thought process? 
process? What was your, like, what, how did you think this was going to end? Honestly. And any upstanding, respectable woman, if a man did not accept her along with her children, then bye, that's not the man for you. You don't pick that guy over your kids. So to kill your children in order to win this man's affection, to me is just the most ass backwards thing I've ever heard. So pointless, so senseless, and so ridiculous that you did not protect your own children all because of a guy. Now, Tom did testify in the trial and he claimed that Susan was very emotionally unstable and was potentially suicidal. However, he denies that their relationship ever got serious or that he had any intentions on it becoming serious. He always said that they were simply just hanging out, having fun, and that he didn't intend for it to go any further than that because she had children. The trial only took five days. It was pretty cut and dry. I mean, yes, Susan confessed, but you still have to have a trial. It's protocol, but it was a pretty quick trial because I mean, she did confess. And on July 23rd, 1995, Susan Smith was found guilty on two counts of first degree murder for the deaths of her two sons, Michael and Alex. And again, Michael was only three years old and Alex was only 14 months old. God, so young. So now that the initial trial is over, Susan has to go to trial again in order to determine her sentencing, whether she will get the death penalty or life in prison. And the public was actually pretty divided on this at the time. Some people felt that she should get the death penalty. Some people felt that she should get life in prison. David specifically said that he wanted her to get the death penalty because he felt that her life should be given up because of the way she killed their children. I'm not against the death penalty, but I think that life in prison is a way worse punishment. This is just my personal opinion. I feel like it's much harder to live with what you did every single day, day in and day out in such small quarters where you literally have no control over your life. David actually took the stand in Susan's death penalty hearing and his testimony was very emotional. It was very hard to listen to because his whole life was stolen from him. These were his kids. He lived for them and now they were just gone. And he said that once he learned that Susan killed their kids, all of his hopes and dreams just completely came to an end. I can't even imagine what David went through at this time. His pride, his joy, his children were just gone, taken from him by their own mother, who he trusted emphatically. Like he trusted Susan so much. And I think that's the saddest, most ironic part of all of this is that he did not think for a second that she was involved. Like he literally did not doubt her every step of the way until he found out that she did it. I feel like that's so much harder to come to terms with when you didn't expect the person to have done it at all. He was very shocked, very, very shocked. So lead prosecutor, Tommy Pope, decided that he wanted to reenact the drowning just to get the jury to see what Michael and Alex went through and hope that this would get Susan the death penalty. So prosecutors go out, they find a car that's very similar to Susan's and they took a camera, they put it inside of the car to show Michael and Alex's perspectives and they sink the car in John D. Long Lake. All in all, it took six minutes for the car to go down and Susan could have saved her kids, but she didn't. She didn't save them. She completely left the scene and let them die. And the prosecutors really wanted the jury to see this because hearing something is one thing, seeing it with your own eyes is another thing. And he felt that this could really help drive home the point and sway the jury to give Susan the death penalty. On July 28th, 1995, only five days after the guilty verdict Susan received, the jury deliberated for two and a half hours and they decided to sentence her to life in prison with the possibility of parole. And this verdict was unanimous, 12 to zero. They decided against the death penalty and Susan is currently serving a life
life sentence in the Leith Correctional Institution in Greenwood, South Carolina, and she will be eligible for parole in September 2024. I don't think she's getting out. I think she'd be much safer in prison, to be honest. I think she should have gotten life without parole, but that was what the jury decided. Today, David is remarried and he has two children, a daughter and a son, and they talk about the boys all the time. His children, they know who Michael and Alex are and that they are their brothers no matter what, even if they didn't get to meet them. My heart really does break for David so much. It's like his whole life was just completely shattered. It's great that he was able to rebuild it and have more children and kind of get a fresh start, but he'll never forget his boys. But Susan, however, has had a pretty interesting time in prison. In 2000, Susan was disciplined for having sex four times with a prison guard named Houston Cagle, and he pleaded guilty and was sentenced to three months in jail. The following year, in 2001, Susan was again caught having sex with a prison captain named Alfred Rowe, and he pled guilty and was sentenced to five years probation. In 2010, Susan got in trouble for drug use twice within this year. In 2015, she got in more trouble for drug use. She was using marijuana and narcotics, and she wrote a letter to the state newspaper and said, quote, I am not the monster society thinks I am. I am far from it. Something went very wrong that night. I was not myself. I was a good mother and I loved my boys. There was no motive as it was not even a planned event. I was not in my right mind, end quote. Again, I call bullshit because if this was not a planned event, why the hell were your wedding albums and maternity clothes in the back of this car? That to me sounds planned. It's like you wanted to sink the car with everything in it that would prevent you from being with this guy, Tom Finley. It's like she's trying to sound like the victim, but it's just not working. You're not the victim in this situation. So all in all, Susan's prison sentence was filled with some pretty serious behavioral issues and she did get in trouble a lot. But sometime in 2018, Susan ended up becoming the ward keeper assistant and she was responsible for the daily operation of her housing unit. So I guess she cleaned up her act and started acting a little bit better because she was given a high position. So it's pretty shocking given the history of her prison stay as well as the nature of her crime. But throughout 2017 and 2019, Susan had pretty severe medical issues and she had to get hospitalized at least six times to receive outpatient treatment, but no one knows what the nature of these illnesses and treatments were. That has not been released to the public. Honestly, I can't believe that she's even eligible for parole in a year. Again, I don't think she's getting out. I hope she doesn't get out. I don't think she deserves to get out at all, but I really want to hear what you guys think. So with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this case. Thank you so much for listening. Please leave comments. I really want to know what you guys think of this case. Keep it respectful. Keep it kind. Thank you so much for listening to another episode. We will be back next week with another episode and I hope to see you in the water soon.